episode six of the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can listen to all our podcasts by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I welcome your thoughts and questions and comments. My email is hope at upc-online.org. So this episode, we are going to have a wonderful interview with Elizabeth Young, who rescues pigeons. She is the founder and director of Palomacy Pigeon and Dove Adoptions, and we're going to hear all about pigeons, and Elizabeth has such wonderful stories about these amazingly sweet birds. And of course, here at UPC, we focus on chickens, but not only chickens, all domestic birds, ducks and geese that are bred and confined and killed for a multitude of commodities, uh, turkeys overcrowded and killed by the billions, not only for the holidays, but year round for their meat. And I plan to do some Reason for Vegan supplemental shows about these specific birds and their plight and their lives. So there are numerous bird species, not just chickens, that are tortured and exploited in the industry, including pigeons that we're going to hear about in a bit. But I wanted to start with some of the latest scientific information on birds and avian brains, because what we're learning is, it's just so amazing. So, of course, it's a common myth that birds are not bright. In fact, the insult bird brain, of course, means that someone is dumb or said or did something dumb. And that just arose from the size of the brain. That uh, insult bird brain rose from the size of the brain because birds' heads, of course, are small. But we're learning that brain size really has nothing to do with intelligence or ability to think or learn or feel or anything else. Birds are amazingly complex creatures. So it is scientifically proven that birds feel pain the same as we do. That is established in science. The American Veterinary Medical Association's guidelines for pain relief and euthanasia of animals always includes avians equally. And in the last few decades, there has also been an abundance of science around birds' emotion and intelligence and sentience. And it's become actually an active field of scientific inquiry with popular books like uh, The the Genius of Birds is one of the books. Another one is called Bird Brain, an Exploration of Avian Intelligence. And what we're learning about the avian brain and behavior just in the last couple of decades contradicts hundreds of years of misinformation and misinformed views about birds. Much of what was previously thought to be the exclusive domain of human communication and maybe some primates, like brain and cognitive functioning and and social behavior, we're now discovering these complexities in chickens and other birds. We're learning that avians are far more intelligent and cognitively sophisticated than previously believed. Birds have sophisticated brains with abilities previously thought to be uniquely human, such as mental time travel. It's kind of what's what it's called when you have the ability to remember the past and plan for the future. 
They have self-recognition, empathy, problem-solving, imagination, insight. They express emotions like grief and fear and enthusiasm, anxiety, frustration, boredom, friendship. They are unique individuals with no less mental capacity as any other animal. Now, I want to give a disclaimer here and say that we should never weigh the value of someone based on intelligence. We should never evaluate if an animal should be used or abused or commodified or not simply because of their brain power abilities. That question should always and only be, can they suffer? And we know the answer to that is yes. They can suffer physically, but they can also suffer emotionally and mentally. And that's what we're learning through this science. Another caution that I want to offer when we are talking about the intelligence of animals, we shouldn't ever compare birds or any other animal to human children. This is something that Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns feels very strongly about, and I certainly agree. There are studies that will say, you know, some animal is as intelligent as a five-year-old human child, but this is really an insult to the adult animal. Can a five-year-old child take care of a nest of 12 chicks? Could a five-year-old child feed her family, protect them from predators? An adult animal can do many intelligent things that a human child cannot. It's really an unfair and insulting comparison. You know, while I understand that activists who are repeating these studies feel that they're elevating the animals, it's really the opposite. We need to move away from our current human-centered way of thinking about intelligence and what intelligence is and realize that these adult animals have abilities and intelligence that surpass us in many ways. I mean, would we know what plants to eat if we got lost in the forest? Could we travel for thousands of miles back to our homes without GPS? <laughs> we need to think of intelligence more broadly. But there has been some really interesting science around these questions, and uh, I kind of want to get back into it. So there was an article in the Scientific American called The Startling Intelligence of the Common Chicken, and it found that chickens can be actually deceptive and cunning. They possess communication skills and uh, sophisticated signals that convey their intentions, when making decisions, uh, chickens take into account their own prior experience and knowledge uh, surrounding the situation. They can solve complex problems. They can empathize with individuals in danger. You know, for people that know and love chickens, this doesn't seem surprising at all, any of this. <laughs> but it's good that science is recognizing these abilities and dispelling myths and showing that chickens are not stupid and do know what is going on. And they're very aware of what's happening to them when they're confined and suffering in misery in farming. Bird showing empathy is an important piece that's seen in the scientific world as being, you know, highly emotionally intelligent. Scientists have observed ravens expressing empathy, 
They are sensitive to the emotional states of other ravens, especially mates or those in their social circles, you know, their friends. If one bird was the victim of some conflict, others will comfort them with gestures like preening and touching, consoling them. So this one was really, really interesting. Eurasian jays, that's a relative of like blue jays or scrub jays. The male Eurasian jay brings food to his mate as a way of courting. He makes choices about what food to bring her, not based on what he likes, you know, his own appetites, but on what she has eaten before, what he has observed her eating before. So he seems to understand that she has a mind of her own and desires that differ from his own. I mean, this is you know, better than some male human courting behaviors, for sure. <laughs> and it, it's a component of social intelligence called theory of mind, which is the ability to attribute mental states, uh, beliefs and desires to others, and to understand that these states may differ from your own, which is considered the foundation of empathy, and therefore, emotionally intelligent. It's important that science is recognizing not only intelligence and emotional complexity, but also the sentience of avians. The years of scientific evidence of animals' consciousness and sentience culminated in a statement from prominent animal neuroscientists and other animal behavior experts, and it was called the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness. And in this declaration, the scientists stated, quote, the weight of evidence indicates that humans are not unique in possessing the neurological substrates that generate consciousness. Non-human animals, including all mammals and birds, also possess these neurological substrates. So there is so much we are learning about birds and their unique and complex lives. If you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to go to UPC's website, that's upc-online.org, and there are numerous articles in the archives about the emotional lives of birds and so much more. So we are going to now bring in our speaker for the day. We are happy to have Elizabeth Young. She is the founder and director of Palomacy Pigeon and Dove Adoptions. Elizabeth graduated with a degree in English from UC Berkeley. She worked 13 years as a director of a nonprofit whose focus was on uh, reducing poverty and developing self-reliance. Then in 2007, she became an accidental pigeon rescuer. Uh, Elizabeth always loved animals, and she was volunteering with the San Francisco Animal Care and Control Shelter, and she learned that it was common for pigeons to come into the shelter but not get out. And all the other animals, the dogs and cats, rabbits and rats, parrots and snakes, all animals had at least one rescue group to help them, but pigeons did not. 
So Elizabeth hadn't intended to start a rescue, but now with Palomacy Pigeon and Dove Adoptions, she has saved the lives of more than a thousand birds directly and helped countless others across the country and beyond. So we are just so happy to have you with us, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for being here. Hope, thank you. I'm truly honored to be on your podcast. Yay. All right. So let's get into it. I want you to tell us about Palomacy. What, uh, what is it that you do? Oh, how does, what does the name mean too? I'm, I'm curious. And uh, yeah, tell us, tell us a little about your pigeon and dove rescue and adoption. So Palomacy means pigeon diplomacy. And we actually had to invent a word for what we were doing because nobody was doing it. Uh, there, along with all the city pigeons, the feral pigeons that everybody's familiar with, there are literally millions of domestic pigeons, <clears throat> mostly, and some doves, that are bred and used for all kinds of businesses and sports, quote unquote, you know, air quotes around sports, hobbies. There's lots of casualties that result. And they're totally predictable. And they're actually just, it, the birds are treated as if they're disposable. And most of them that get hurt when they're being used in these different ways just die out in the world because everything eats pigeons and doves. So they don't last very long. But a few lucky, the lucky of the luckiest that get hurt but get found and get taken to a shelter were then being killed. Um, they'd stand in a cage for a week. They didn't know what to do with them, and they didn't publicize them. They didn't name them. They didn't take them to adoption events or anything like that. They didn't put them on the website. So, you know, unsurprisingly, they didn't get adopted. And it was just this cycle, and they were just kind of, again, disposable. All the other animals had, you know, everybody, everybody had at least one rescue. I mean, especially here in the Bay Area. I mean, we have rescues for neonatal kittens. We have rescues for old dogs, senior dogs. Muttville's amazing what they do. We have rescue for black dogs and cats because they're harder to uh, place, you know, not to mention all the rabbit and the rodent and the pocket pet and the parrot and farm sanctuary, all these rescues. Except nobody was helping these domestic pigeons and doves. Think about speciesism. I, I think that's a huge part of it. I think if this had been a different kind of animal, they wouldn't have been in that predicament. I think pigeons are really uh, mistreated. They're treated as less than. So it felt like not only were we having to find homes for animals that needed them, but we had to do it uphill. Uh, you know, sort of going against this incredible prejudice. People don't appreciate pigeons. They don't know pigeons. They fear them. They think they're dirty. They think they'll get diseases. And so pigeon diplomacy in that we had to be out there in the world being ambassadors and, and diplomats for these amazing creatures who were so misunderstood it feels really good. I really, I love, we wanted, we wanted not to just have a name of the rescue. We wanted a name for a movement. So people can do Palomacy everywhere. It's not just our little group. 
wherever you are, whenever you are helping to share how amazing pigeons are and how they shouldn't be treated as so badly, that's diplomacy. Pigeon diplomacy, huh? Yes. That's wonderful. I love that. So I, I'm wondering how you got into the rescue work. I know, uh, you know I, I know a little bit that you were at the Animal Care Control Shelter, but can you tell us more about how it evolved, the, uh, the rescue work that you do? When I was a kid, when I, was, I, I, have all, I love all animals. I've always been drawn to all animals. From, I mean, that's my first and biggest passion. And when I was little, you know, six or seven, and people say, oh, you're going to be a vet when you grow up. And I always knew, I said, no, I could never be a vet because I knew I couldn't handle being in the animal business. How do you manage those conflicting objectives, you know, to stay in business and pay your bills and also to help animals in need? Like, it's a very tricky and so I knew I had no interest in, in I didn't never wanted to work with animals in a business kind of sense. And I never wanted to be in rescue because, you know, as I got older, I never felt like I, my heart could never take it. And mm. any rescue I did was just personal. Like when I adopted a dog, I went to the animal shelter to adopt my dog. And when I adopted cats, same thing. And when I adopted a parrot, you know, the same thing. I, I would never buy an animal but I never wanted to get attached to a rescue or be a part of a rescue community. Cause I just, you know, I, I isolated myself in that. I was, I, I couldn't deal with it. And in my mid forties, I had a great job that I liked, but I didn't love. And I thought maybe I was wrong all those years ago when I was a kid. And I just said, no, I want, you know, maybe I had, made a, the wrong choice and blocked myself off because I still have this passion. I mean, I still read about animals and talk to the animals. And if I go to a party, I'm, I'm the one that's talking to the cat, you know? <laughs> and so I thought my mid forties, I was like, you know what? I am going to volunteer at the animal shelter, you know, one or two shifts a week, right? That's very, I was full up. I had my rescue dog, you know, my adopted dog, my two cats and my two parrots. So I was full. I didn't have any room for any more animals, um, but I wanted to help. So I thought I'll go volunteer. And that's very reasonable and pragmatic. And, you know, maybe just test this theory a little bit. And so the last thing I ever wanted to do was to start a rescue. And when I started volunteering, um, I first signed up to walk the dogs, but they actually had volunteers, you know, like lined up to walk the dogs. Like there was no need for that. So the need was in what's called the smalls or the exotics. So that, that kind of catch-all place where they have the rabbits and the guinea pigs and the parrots and the chickens and the quail. And it turns out, you know, the, the pigeons. And so I started volunteering in service to those animals. And I was really inspired by the rescues because if it hadn't been for all the rescues who were helping all those animals to get placed, I would have just run screaming away. Like, you know, it, it was, it's overwhelming. Like how many people are still bringing in, you know, puppies and kittens and rabbits and oh, my kids, 
you know, they, they got ducklings for Easter and, you know, it's, it's just heartbreaking, but there are all these rescues doing such great work. So I was really inspired and that let me like kept me from running away. But within like the first weeks that I was there, I noticed they were bringing, you know, these, you'd come into your shift and there would be these big white pigeons just standing in a cage in the smallest room and their body language was like, leave me alone. I'm afraid. And the shelter staff really didn't have it. They weren't a part of the training or anything that nobody named them. Nobody taught, you know, they teach you how to give enrichment to the rabbits and how to handle the Guinea pigs and all that kind of stuff. But the pigeons were just like there. And then the next week you come and they wouldn't be. And mm -hmm. most of the king pigeons that are bred for meat, for example, in California, there's a million king pigeons killed annually for squab. And the vast majority of those are raised and then processed in a plant and shrink wrapped and they go to fancy restaurants and nobody sees them until they're on the plate. But there are some king pigeons that are routed to live poultry markets and farmers markets and flea markets and backyard breeders. And when people are exposed to these, especially at the live poultry markets, people make the mistake of buying them and thinking, I'm going to save this animal's life. I'm going to take this pigeon or these 10 pigeons to the park and set them free. And they don't realize that these birds are completely domestic and completely helpless in the wild. They're super smart and they kind of know they're, they're in trouble. Um, they definitely know they're in trouble, but they, they have no survival skills. And so most of those pigeons get killed by the, you know, the coyotes and the cats and the hawks and the ravens and the gulls and mean people. They even get run over. Like they're pretty much on stun because they know they've, you know, they've never been outside of a, a cubbyhole basically. And now they're out in the big world. The few of those that were lucky enough. So think about how that is. So they were bred to be meat and butchered at four weeks of age. And instead of going to the processing plant, they went on the truck to the live poultry market. So they dodged death there. Then now they're at the live poultry market. And instead of being purchased for home butchering, for freshness, many cultures, that's their, their they prize freshness overall with meat. They were bought to be released either in an altruistic way or for ceremony or so now they've dodged death again. Now they're out in the world and they're again facing death because they're completely vulnerable and they're a very tasty meal to every kind of predator. And yet they get lucky enough that some person finds them, goes to the effort of cornering them and picking them up and finding, you know, taking them to the shelter. So now they've, they've defied certain death four times and they're at the shelter and they're there for a week. And then they're, you know, they call it euthanized. Like that just, that was, <laughs> I mean, that just seemed like the, the saddest, most terrible story ever. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do about it. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't like when I started there, I didn't have anything particular for pigeons. I mean, I love pigeons. I, I didn't have anything against them, but I didn't have any particular special passion for them. I mean, I just loved all animals. And so the first couple, I was there about three weeks 
And, you know, you get a sense like, yeah, these birds, they were here last week, they're gone this week. And they act, you know, they're afraid, they're not socialized, they're poultry. Uh, you don't know what to do. You don't want to let them out of the cage and have them bang around and then staff will get mad at you or, you know, so you don't know what to do. And then one time, and this is like within the first month I'm doing this, I came in and there was this big white king pigeon. She was bigger even than some of the others. And she was in one of those stainless steel kennels. And she was just like hopping from one foot to the next. And she was at the front. She was like, let me out, let me out. You know, I mean, you could see she was, she wanted attention. And that was completely different. You know, none of the others had been like that. They just stand there, like, try to be invisible. They're terrified. And so at the end of my shift, I was like, I don't know, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know what this bird wants. But she wants something. And so I opened the door and I put my hand out. And she just stepped up on my hand like such a little, well, such a big lady. Mm. Uh, I was surprised at her weight. She, I was like, well, and she was just so, that's what she wanted. So her name was Guadamina. And Guadamina had been somebody's pet. She wasn't just off the, you know, out of a crate from the poultry market. She was a mature king pigeon who had somebody had had as a pet for a couple of years. So she was socialized, she was bicultural, you know, human, avian. And so when she wound up at the shelter, she knew what to do. She knew how to communicate with people and that's what she wanted to do. So I just walked around, I introduced her to all the rabbits and, you know, showed her the budgies and, and she was just the most elegant and sweet and, you know, it was kind of like a fairy tale. And when I put her back in the kennel, uh, I realized, oh, okay, so this is what a pigeon can be. Like, th this, is, this is an amazing pet. This is an incredible pet. So when she was up against uh, being timed out, um, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't adopt her because I, I was full up, but I was like, you know what, I can find a home for this bird. Like, I know I can. I, I was familiar with Mikaboo Parrot Rescue, uh, Mikaboo Companion Bird Rescue. They're a fantastic rescue here in the Bay Area that helps parrots of all kinds, you know, from the budgies to the macaws. And I was like, you know, this is an amazing bird. She, she needs a home. She can be placed. And so I uh, reached out to Mikaboo and I took Guatemina into my foster care so that she was home with me for a month while I worked on finding a good home for her. And I did. Mikaboo was so kind. They let me um, connect through their listserv and, you know, publicize her along with their other birds. And um, the woman who adopted Guatemina actually uh, attended one of Mikaboo's free bird care training classes. So it was wonderful. And then the next two king pigeons came in and they were more typical. They were scared. They were youngsters. They're, they butcher them at four weeks old. They're, they haven't even fledged. And so they're immature. They're scared anyway. Um, they're usually dirty. Most of them are sick. They have respiratory infections. They have GI 
trouble. And so there were these two little scrawny, funky looking king pigeons huddled in their cage and one died, um, which wasn't uncommon. You know, they're, they're frail and, and then, so the other one was left there alone. And yeah, I named her Rocky because, so pigeons are really defenseless, um, but if they feel really up against it, they'll, we call it wing foo. They'll punch you with their wing. They'll slap you with a wing. And she always, when, when I tried to reach to her, she would always punch me with her left wing. So I named her Rocky, like she was a Southpaw. That was my turning point, Hope, right there was, you know, was it a one-off? Was I going to help Gwetamina? She got a great home and now I was going to run and close myself back into my bubble. Or was I going to help Rocky? Because I knew if there was going to be a number two, there would be a number three and a four and a five. And I never, that was my worst fear. Um, And I did this work the first four or five years with the brakes on, feeling like a crazy person, feeling like, how can I possibly be doing this? Uh, Polar bears are going extinct. Elephants are tortured. You know, how, how can I be spending my time rescuing pigeons? And after a few years, I, I got past myself. And now I'm extremely proud of the work that we do. I ended up adopting Rocky. I fell in love with her. And um, she was our second bird. And, you know, we've, we've directly rescued and placed over a thousand since then. And we help lots more. Oh, what a beautiful story. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting what you said there about, oh, you know, should I dedicate myself to this work when there's so many other bigger seeming things in the world? Uh, but, you know, these people don't realize, and I know you do now, and I certainly do, that these animals, these birds, chickens and pigeons and uh, all the animals that need rescue are such amazing individuals with, you know, personalities and emotional uh, complexity and, and they each one absolutely deserve to live their lives free of human imposed suffering and death. We know that as rescuers and as um, advocates, and it, it's so important to tell that to the world and share that with the world. What you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, I can testify to that. I, it's a little overwhelming. Like I, every pigeon I've met, and I've met a lot, is a total individual. They are, they are as much themselves as I am myself and you are yourself. Yes. And it's overwhelming. Like I, I have a hard time sort of being out in the world now more than ever because there's lots of pigeons living in the city and you see them limping around because of the string foot that they've got entangled or just looking, looking pretty hungry. And, and it's overwhelming to think like every one of those is a little bird person. You know, they all out to the, the billions of chickens and the, you know, it just, it's, um, we live surrounded by so many lives that we don't even register. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us about pigeons and doves. Who are they? What's their history? What's the difference between the two? I'm curious. And why do they need rescuing? 
Yes, it's a huge topic because the, the family of pigeons and doves is huge. There's hundreds of wild species of pigeons and doves, like the dodo, which is now extinct, right? That big giant flightless bird, that was a pigeon. That's in the wow. pigeon family. Oh, wow. um, there were the passenger pigeons, which were native to North America and lived in the billions. They were the type of animal that massed in greater numbers than anything else uh, outside of the oceans. And they were the ones that when they would fly over your town, they would block out the sun for hours or days because their flocks were so huge. So these were passenger pigeons. And in a, like a 40 year period of time, humans, we exterminated them. They're extinct now. They're absolutely extinct, which it didn't seem possible. Their numbers were so tremendously huge that no one thought they could ever uh, wipe them out. But it was basically a convergence of the railroad and the telegraph. So people could call forward in advance and say, hey, Kansas City, the passenger pigeons are on the way towards you. And people would all rush there and just blast them out of the sky with their shotguns. And the passenger pigeons are actually now used as an example for what's happening in the oceans with the overfishing because there's a lot of talk about, oh, these systems are so huge, the numbers are so great, it could never collapse. And actually, yes, they can. They hit a critical, uh, you know, they lose a critical mass. So then pigeons and doves, so then there's the regular city pigeons, right, that we're familiar with. Those are rock pigeons and they are, uh, they were, they're native to the Mediterranean and Southern Europe and they have some traits that people really exploit, which is their predictability of raising chicks. So you've got fresh meat um, by eating their babies and their homing instincts. If you take one away from its home, it will amazingly find its way home most of the time. They're, they have an incredible homing ability that's been studied. It's, it's still being studied. Anyway, so these two things made these birds very useful to people. And so now they're, they're all over the world. I think they live everywhere except Antarctica, all the continents. And they're non-natives, right? Um, they're, considered, they're not considered an invasive species because they really don't take up any resources or displace anybody, but they are considered non-native. And so that means there's a lot of discrimination against them. A lot of wildlife rescues won't help them because they're non-native. A lot of places treat them as if they're nuisance birds or pests. Uh, in Las Vegas, the animal care and control recently told a rescuer uh, who was trying to get help for some tortured pigeons that there wasn't anything they could do because it'd be like stepping on a cockroach. Oh. Yeah, but that's, you know, that, I think that's, it's, that's not an uncommon feeling. So there's a huge, there's many, many, there's hundreds of different species of pigeons and doves. Morning doves, probably the doves you might have uh, in your backyard. They're these little soft fawn brown birds. They kind of have blue eyeshadow, big brown eyes, and they do their little cooing and you can hear their wings whistle when they fly away. So that's a morning dove. That's a wild native bird. We have band-tailed pigeons 
here in the in the Bay Area, and they're native. Uh, they're the wild pigeons that live in the scrubland and in the forests and everything. They have yellow feet and beaks, uh, which is how you can tell that they're not a, a rock pigeon. And from the rock pigeon, there's been created all these breeds, uh, the same way we've done to dogs. So the rock pigeon has been selectively, you know, they choose them for certain traits or mutations or defects and inbreed over and over and over to get all this different variety. So there's fantail pigeons and there's these big giant white king pigeons and Persian high flyers and Birmingham rollers and Norwich croppers and just there's literally hundreds of breeds. And what's the, what's the purpose of that? Do they show them? What's I, what would be the reason? Yeah. So that's a great question. So yeah, exactly. They, there's, there's three major groups. Uh, there's the sport, the utility, they call it, and the show or fancy. And so uh, like king pigeons, uh, these big white birds they're about almost twice the size of a regular pigeon they're mostly snow white um, and they're bred specifically for meat it's squab considered a delicacy it's an expensive uh, meat it's served in high-end restaurants but those birds are bred they're in the utility classification so they're bred to be meat designed that's why they were bred that way they are Um, the reason they're white is not because they care about the feathers color, but they want pink skin. Uh, Consumers prefer Mm -hmm. pink skin meat, which is why the white broiler chickens and why Tyson's turkeys are white. And, you know, even meat rabbits and ducks are white. And that's all a factor of of the goal of pink skin. And yes, they do show them. They do these terrible, they breed them. Like if you Google pigeon breeds, it's like a freak show. You will see these birds that have these huge tails and their head, their spine is in such a severe S curve, deliberately bred to be that way, that they, they can't even see over their own chest. They can't even feed their own babies. Uh, and they're bred, you know, to meet this crazy show standard. And so when they lay eggs, uh, the breeders take their eggs away from them and give them to pigeons who have a normal confirmation so that they can hatch and raise these little, you know, it's just, it's heartbreaking what they do. They, they breed pigeons with these giant crops. You know, you've seen on the street, right? The male pigeons are kind of puffing up and strutting around and talking up the ladies. Uh-huh. And that's their crop that they're, uh, that's what they hold seeds and food in, but that's also what they inflate to kind of give some, put some bat, you know, some bass in their voice. There's pigeons that have been bred. They're called different types, powders and croppers, where that crop is so huge that it it hangs like a like a deflated grapefruit from their chest and when they get excited it inflates until it can be the size of you know like a, almost not quite a soccer ball and it's really troubling for them i mean they it's no favor C- creating these insanely exaggerated traits just because you can they do the same thing you know how there's the, the short-faced 
dog breeds. They do the same thing with pigeons. There's fancy breeds of pigeons. Uh, they're called owls, confusingly enough, but their beaks are so short or, or absent that they can't feed their babies either. They, and, and they've been deliberately bred that way. They, you know, it's a, it's a goal, like whose bloodlines can get, you know, the least amount of beak or the biggest crop or whatever crazy thing you come up with. Hmm. And the difference between doves and pigeons, so they're the same family, but they're different species. The word dove is thrown around very loosely, very unscientifically, and is often used for any bird in that family that is perceived positively. For example, if you go to a ceremony, a wedding or a funeral, and there is a release, quote unquote, of of a dove release, those aren't doves. Those are white homing pigeons. Mm -hmm. And they've been bred to be white and to have a good homing instinct. And when they're released at the ceremony, they try and head back home. And most of them will make it sometimes, sometimes there can be a catastrophe. It's, it's not a good thing. We're absolutely uh, oppose it. But in that instance, they, nobody wants wedding pigeons, right? So they call them doves, but those aren't doves. Doves don't have a homing instinct. In our work, the doves that we help here in the Bay Area and around the, the country are domestic ringneck doves, which have been bred to be these cute little pets. Uh, they're descended from, I think, the uh, African collared dove. Then we have a uh, another, like we have the morning doves, which are wild around here. And, and those birds are served by the wildlife rescue. So our specialty is the domestic and unreleasable pigeons and doves, the birds that can't, that aren't served by the, the wildlife rescues. Yeah. So you often, you know, we're both in the Bay Area and you often bring a few birds to events here like VegFest and conferences. And I love to see the birds. I love to see people reacting to them and holding them and taking pictures with them. And I think it's really wonderful that people get to experience the birds as individuals. So what is that like when you bring pigeons uh, to events? It's really, really essential because, you know, so pigeons are, are ubiquitous, right? So everybody, the general public thinks they know pigeons and for the most part, they don't like them. They think of them as dirty, which pigeons are not. Pigeons are meticulously committed to cleanliness and, and feather perfection. And if you ever see a dirty pigeon, that's because they're trapped in a dirty environment. They would never be dirty by choice. And people are scared of them. Like, oh, they'll get sick. They'll get a disease. Oh, there's so many diseases. They'll get sick. Don't touch it. And actually that couldn't be further from the truth. On a, on a spectrum of, of how you can get sick, pigeons are way, way, way. I mean, you're much more likely to get struck by lightning really, truly, than you are to ever be made sick by a pigeon. You're way more likely to be made sick by your own dog or your own cat or your own friend than you are pigeons. They're actually not a health risk to humans. That's, that's just an excuse. You know, they poop, so people don't like them. And so you have to kind of justify like, oh, well, let's get rid of them. And it's big business, actually. Pest uh, pigeon removal 
is a you know multi-million dollar business and it, you would be hard pressed to do that with sparrows or ravens or herons because people would be like that's terrible you can't you have to those animals deserve kindness and and humane treatment whereas pigeons everyone's like well good get rid of them and that's so so that's a big myth and then the other thing is uh or people think they're dumb like oh you know they wouldn't even get out of the street when you're walking they're so stupid and that's not true pigeons are highly intelligent they're scary intelligent so i learned really really like from the instant uh it was my gut instinct and i was spot on that i can't talk to anybody about pigeons you don't have any clue of who they are until you meet one and so i knew i couldn't go anywhere and talk about pigeons because people's eyes just glaze over and it's just like you know they think they know what they know so yes i bring pigeons and basically these birds were treated as if they were unadoptable that's why they weren't named or put on the website or promoted or included in events or anything is they were considered unadoptable and they were obviously very adoptable they make amazing pets and these birds can't be released they can't go free that's the first thing i would want to do if if they could be every any bird that can be free should be free um, i am not a fan of captive birds at all and i would gladly see the end of bird captivity in every which way but these birds are here they're domestic they can't survive on their own they have to have a home and so we help them find it and to do that we have to introduce them to people. And they are, you know, they're our secret charm weapon because pigeons are just very, very charming. They're very personable. Um, they're very emotional, but they're, they're chill and relaxed. And we call them masters of the leisure arts because <laughs> they like to hang out on the couch and they like to lay in the sun and they like to soak in a tub and they're just, I mean, they're wonderful. And so, yeah, we take them everywhere. And I have seen a shift. I've been doing this 12 years now, and I have absolutely, I mean, the needle, we have a long ways to go to move the needle, but I have absolutely seen it shift. People are getting the message. And these birds are no longer considered unadoptable, just, you know, automatically. So, you know, when you go to adoption events, you expect there's going to be animals. There's you know, hundreds of dogs and cats and rabbits and all the people and, and we bring our birds and, and we are showstoppers. People are amazed because we have pigeons and pants and they're like, what? But so that's pretty, you know, that's cool. But sometimes... You, um, you mean that I, I just got to clarify, pigeon, you have a little kind of a diapery thing you put around their yeah. back to catch any yeah. uh, droppings. So that's what you mean yeah. by pigeons and pants, yeah. just, just to clarify. <laughs> and, you know, they would rather be naked. Um, but the pigeon pants, and I'm not, I tell you, I'm not a dress up my pet kind of person, but the pigeon pants have been a real game changer for these guys because first of all, you can't meet a bird in a cage like this. There's just nothing. It's just so alienating. All you can do is kind of pity them. So when we put these pants on the pigeon and pigeons are so like parrots, anybody who has a parrot, who's ever tried to put on a harness or, or a bird diaper knows like, good luck with that. Cause they will kill you first <laughs> but pigeons are such easy going i mean they're good sports they would rather be naked too they don't want to wear pants they know it's ridiculous but they put up with it so you put this diaper on and it's also a harness and you have a little leash and that leash is on your arm so that you can have them out and hold them in your arm 
and introduce them to people safely. So they're not going to get spooked and fly uh, loose and then be at risk because that's what these birds can't be free. And so, and the diaper, yeah, that's nice too. It keeps the, you know, keeps the poop off of you and me. But our main appreciation for them is the harness and that we can actually, I can put these birds in your arms and you should see people's faces just change. I mean, I'd like to have, I need to have one of those little blood pressure finger thingies or whatnot because they, the, the effect that they have is transformative. Yeah. We call pigeons gateways to compassion. Hmm. Now, sometimes we're invited to events that are, uh, we're interested and we want to be at, but they're not animal events. And one of these was your event that you um, host with the UPC, the um, Conscious Conscious Eating Eating Conference. Conference. Uh Yeah, yeah. And you were kind enough to offer us a pro bono table to to, um, have at the conference and to share literature and meet people and everything. And I looked it up and I, I mean, I was thrilled to be invited <clears throat> and I looked it up and looked at all the details and I knew it wasn't an animal event. This was not an adoption event. This was a conference on a lot of, you know, with a lot of expert speakers and in a non-animal setting. But I took a chance and I brought one king pigeon King pigeons are bred for meat. Nobody knows that. Even animal rescuers and the animal welfare community is pretty much oblivious to this. It's, a, it's like this hidden thing. And I came fully prepared to be turned away at the door. I knew I didn't ask because I didn't want to ask. I didn't want the, yeah, no, this is not an animal event, which you had every right and only made sense. So I came to the event and I was fully prepared to go home, just turn back and not, you know, not have my feelings hurt because I knew what I was doing was sort of breaking a rule. But at the same time, I knew that if I did bring a pigeon, people would be amazed. There would be no trouble. There would be no fuss. There'd be no poop. There would be no disruption. I mean, they're just, they're so good. And so I took the chance and I, I'll, I'll never get over how grateful I am to you, Hope, because you just looked at me and you smiled and you were like, I don't know what you were thinking. Um, and well, I'm, I kind of have the same attitude of, well, let's, let's, I, I'd rather have to apologize later than ask for permission, you know? So <laughs> that's, that's exactly, I just felt, I was like, you know what? I mean, I, I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to give it a try. And to like, I am so touched by not only did you uh, allow me, and that was Valiant, if I remember correctly, King Pigeon Valiant, who was there as my ambassador. Not only did you let, I mean, we, we were in the, in the, in the auditorium for the presentations. We met hundreds of people. Uh, we had pictures taken with Karen Davis, you know, and here we were like, we're in a auditorium full, a conference full of animal lovers and animal rights activists and vegans. And I had the only animal in the building. (laughs) So so we were very popular and (laughs) it was a great day. It was an amazing day. And um, I totally would have understood if you had never invited us again, or if when you did, you said, okay, that was fine last year, but you know, don't, don't try that stunt again. But 
Oh no, we loved it. We loved it. And we, and we absolutely always love every year having you and the birds come to all our events. Yeah. We feel very, very grateful. Um, The pigeons need that extra, you know, that, that, that extra level of support and recognition and yeah, it's been really, so, so yeah, taking the birds is people have to meet them. And when they do, they go away forever different. And that's, you know, most people will never meet a domestic pigeon. Um, they're going to meet the rock pigeons, the feral pigeons that live in our cities. And a lot of times people will come up to us and they'll say, you know, we, if we have, you know, one of our rescued pigeons, we keep them in a clean environment. They're well fed. Their water is clean. So they're beautiful. You know, after they've been with us for a couple of weeks, they, they, they clean up real nice and they're gorgeous. Or these big white king pigeons, you know, they're snow white and they look so gorgeous. And people will come up to us and they'll say, oh, this is a beautiful bird. Not like those dirty, you know, flying rats. Mm. And I say right there, time out. Um, and that's where, uh, I talk about feral pigeons because those are the birds that we all meet and they're, and there's nothing wrong with rats, first of all, but pigeons are smart. They're, they're loyal. Uh, They have amazing um, devotion to their mate. They mate for life and they both take care of their eggs. They both build both male and female build the nest, both sit on the eggs, both feed the chicks. I mean, they're really admirable creatures. I want to transfer that, appreciation that they suddenly have for this domestic or rescued pigeon and have them take that out into the world and forever see all the pigeons differently um, as they should. Wonderful. Such, such important work. I love it. So I want to ask if there is a, perhaps another bird story, and it was great to hear about the their two first rescues. Was it Guatemina? Was that her Guadamina. name? Yeah, Guatemina. Guatemina and Rocky. Yep. Uh, that was wonderful. Are, is there, are there any other stories that you can share? A bird that maybe had an unusual story or that really touched you in some way? Uh, is there anybody else you'd like to talk yeah, about? I, we've got a lot of them, and it's really fun. We have a great website and a great blog, and it's pigeonrescue.org, and you can and you can really just lose yourself in a lot of amazing stories. I think the one I want to share is uh, Francis. The shelter was full up, and we're always full up. Everybody's always full up, and anybody who rescues animals is full up. And they ha- they were going to euthanize for space, and they gave us a warning. And so we went, and we managed to negotiate uh, that the Marin Humane Society was going to help us with some pigeons. And so I went to pick up the, the overflow of domestic pigeons from the shelter and, and take them to Marin. And there was one that just wasn't in good enough condition to just be in general population. He was skinny and he had neurological issues and I just knew he needed, you know, one-on-one care basically. And so transported the others and kept him back, which I hadn't planned on because I was already full, but that's what you have to do. So I brought him home. Uh, He was a king pigeon. He was a mature bird. He wasn't a squab. He was, you know, maybe four or five years old. So he had been used as a breeder. He had a, he was in the midst of a virus called paralmixovirus, which attacks the nervous system. And it, uh, it gives them palsy, like they can't control their head. 
it, it gives them torticollis where their neck twists. So it's called stargazing. Their head is actually upside down. Mm. Um, they can't feed themselves. They're just, they're just a mess. But if you can support them through this crisis, they can recover. The virus itself isn't fatal. It's just like the, you know, the not being able to take care of themselves that kills them. But, but Francis, so here he is, he's this grown man pigeon who's miserable, he's hungry, he's, he's starved, he, you know, and his neurological system is all out of whack. And oh my goodness, he hated me. Oh, so I had to feed him, you know, I had to force feed him several times a day. And every time I'm reaching in to do this, like he's just going crazy in rebellion, like, no, don't touch me. You know, he's basically having a panic attack and that worsens his, his symptoms. It's awful. Like it's, it's just torture for both of us. And I'm miserable and he's miserable. And so I'm trying different ways to figure out like, how can, how can I help this guy, you know, in a, in a way that's more comfortable for him. Um, and anyway, that day, finally, I decided, you know what, instead of tube feeding him formula, which, you know, you put the tube straight down the throat into the crop and it's formula and it's, you know, I mean, you're getting the nutrition, but it's not really like eating. I thought, you know what, I'm going to try and hand feed him these grains. Pigeons eat, they're granivores, they're vegan. And so they eat corn and uh, wheat and oats and all kinds of different um, peas, lots of different. Anyway, so I bundled them up. I had them in my arms and I started, instead of tube feeding him, I put a seed in his mouth, which wasn't easy because he's thrashing around and going crazy. And I'm trying to, and I swear it was like the first or the second seed that he got in his mouth and he swallowed. And he was like, oh, that's food. I want that. <laughs> and I swear he fell in love with me. Like mm. it was such a profound shift. He was like, oh yes. Okay. Now. Yes. And it was, oh my God. I mean, I still get chills just thinking about it. So now we're on the same side, right? So now, I mean, he's still sick as hell, but I'm hand feeding him. He's loving it. He's falling in love with me. When I open his crate, uh, I call it my kitchen counter hospital. Um, you know, I opened his crate and he's like in his spazzy little way greeting me, you know, he's, he's happy to see me. Aww. And, um, he had a long recovery. It was like, I don't know, it took maybe six or eight months and he got, you know, he was living in the house and his little pitter patter, uh, he would march down the, the hallway, just the cutest thing in the world. He eventually got well enough. Like I would put him out in the aviary during the day but bring him in because it was just too exhausting for him um, for 24 seven. And he was really lonesome. I was his, you know, his bird wife, but not a very good one. And he finally wooed the widow country and they got married and he was so happy. And so they, I, I adopted Francis. I don't adopt all of them. I, I swear. I, I find homes <laughs> for most of them, but Francis, I mean, that example, and I could tell you many stories like that. That's how pigeons are so smart and so adaptable that they can change on a dime. And that's an extraordinary ability to be that resilient, that flexible, 
that responsive. What a great story. Little Francis. <laughs> oh my God. You can see, you can see video of him. He's on our, he's on our website. Oh, cool. So Elizabeth, I want to ask you, I know that you are vegan and I want to ask how you went vegan, why you went vegan, you know, how that connects to what you do. So I told you, I've loved animals all my life, but I grew up in a meat and potatoes family and I understood it. You know, I knew it at some intellectual level. I understood that those pork chips that I thought were so delicious and the steak that I enjoyed so much, those were animals. But that was, you know, that was my diet. That's what I grew up on and that's what I ate and that's what I knew. And, and as I got older, you know, teens and 20s, I always kind of planned on becoming vegetarian. That just seemed like a good, you know, it was an aspiration. It just seemed like a, a good thing to do. And I had, remember, I had stayed out of the rescue community, out of the animal welfare community. I, I, didn't, I didn't expose myself to any of that because I just couldn't bear it. But when I started rescuing pigeons, you know, then you, when you start rescuing animals, you start learning about what happens to animals. And it was quickly clear to me, like, forget about vegetarian. I need to be vegan. Like, you know, I, it's all terrible. Like eggs and dairy are, you know, the suffering is just unbelievable. And so I'll tell you a couple of things that really helped me. I mean, your conscious eating conference has always been a huge help to me because I love what I learn and I, I love the experience. And that has been a huge help to me. And also thistle and bistro. <laughs> Those have been huge helps to me. Yeah, maybe explain what those are. So Thistle and Bistro are, are home delivery, home meal delivery, uh, yeah. that vegan options that are delicious. Um, I'm not a good cook anyway. I'm a terrible cook. And what little I did learn how to cook is not, you know, something I can eat anymore. And so having, uh, like, Bistro is my, I just love my, my Bistro. They're, uh, and it's Bistro with a V. It is. It's yeah. V-E- E S T R O and it arrives frozen, which seemed like I was like, oh, that's gonna be, you know, what the what the heck? But gosh, I love having a freezer full of delicious, healthy vegan meals that are so yummy. I don't know how they make them so yummy. Um, <laughs> and they they heat, you know, you use them. I do it stovetop or in the oven and. Yeah. I mean, not, I'm not, I don't get commissioned for Bistro or anything, but for me <laughs> as a, like somebody, I'm not a cook. I'm not somebody who likes to, that, that has really been a joy. Yeah. They're very helpful, especially for people that don't like to cook. I've heard that before from vegans um, that aren't really into cooking. Those are really great options because it comes just right to your door and it is delicious. I, we did, we did that once for Thanksgiving, getting their Thanksgiving feast and it was, yeah, fabulous. What a great idea. I didn't know about that. That's a great idea. <laughs> well, we do need to wrap it up. It's been such a wonderful conversation. Elizabeth Young, thank you so much for being with us. How can people get a hold of you? And, and if they want to consider adopting a pigeon, how do they, how do they reach you? 
Hope, thank you. I'm really, really so honored to, to be on your podcast. And there's a lot of different ways. So we're here in the Bay Area and our website is pigeonrescue.org. But there are birds in need of help everywhere. And we have a Paloma Sea help group on Facebook that is extraordinary. People tell me every day I hear that our Paloma Sea help group gives them hope or gives them faith in mankind mm. <laughs> because it's a very positive, supportive, compassionate place. And people find these downed birds, these injured uh, survivors of pigeon racing or these abandoned, uh, abandoned unsold birds that are at shows. And anyway, people find these birds and they need help. And it's not easy to find help for a pigeon. And we're making it a lot more accessible through our Paloma Sea help group on Facebook. And it's wonderful. And people really enjoy, we share our stories and our crazy pictures and just the joy that we find with these guys. Pigeons and doves are wonderful. Uh, rescued pigeons and doves make wonderful pets. They're, they're easy. They, they're, they live with us easily. They fit in easily. And it's not like you're taking a wild bird and making them captive. There is no free for these birds. They have to have a home. And so whether they're pets in your house with the family or you have an outside aviary that's predator and rodent proof, it's really awesome. It's great. And, and they're everywhere. So whoever is hearing this, you don't have to feel like, oh, I wish I was in the Bay Area. I'd get involved. You can get involved wherever you are around the country, around the world. Wonderful. And I'll put the uh, website and maybe a link to the Facebook page in the show notes um, on our website, uh, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. Uh, so we'll have that there. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's really been a wonderful conversation. I've learned so much about pigeons. Uh, <laughs> it's been great. Thank you again, Hope. I really am very grateful for this opportunity to do a little pigeon diplomacy. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. You can support this podcast by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please have hope for a better world for animals. Consider adopting a pigeon and live vegan.